Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. How you doing? Happy recording day. I am doing well. I feel like we haven't recorded a normal weekly typographic in a minute. It does feel like it's been at least six or seven months. Yeah, exactly. I think maybe it's been two weeks, but you know. For sure. I mean, we had we had fun stuff. We had the interview with Spline that came out a couple weeks ago, Alejandro and Faride, and then we had some very special editions of the Weekly Typographic last week for Type Weekend, which like, oh my God, incredible. So much good stuff happening over there. Please check those out if you haven't, and then you can easily just rewatch the Type Weekend videos if you go to Type Weekend's YouTube. But very fun stuff, but I am very excited to be here today talking about news. I mean, we're going to be covering... I can't believe we haven't even talked about monotype acquiring. <laughs> we got a couple big things to talk <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, Heffler & Co. But um, the Nerd Alert today, if you don't know what the cover art is about, that's okay. But we're talking about syllabics today, which I think super interesting. And during my research, I learned that like syllabics could mean two different things. It could mean a type of writing system, a syllabic writing system, but it also refers to Canadian Aboriginal syllabics, which is how they write in Northern North America over there. Canada. In Canada, exactly. <laughs> and so it's just gonna be really fascinating. I feel like I'm really excited. I can't even summarize what I'm gonna do right now, but we're gonna be talking about writing systems <laughs> of the world. And that explains a lot of language that we're familiar with. You know, I love to do deep dives into etymology and stuff like that. But then we're also gonna be talking about a minority script and why it's important to be preserving writing systems for cultures to allow them to hang on to their culture and continue preserving it for years and generations to come. Indeed. Wow. Eloquently put, my friend. Right. And this all came from watching some of the Type Weekend talks where people have been actively working on this stuff. And I think that kind of inspired us to, A, recognize that we don't know a ton about it. Mm -hmm. And so it's worth researching. And there's probably other people that don't know a ton about it. So it's worth sharing. Exactly. Yeah. I'm about it. Uh, and speaking of sharing, the first link of the week, we're extra excited about this. When this comes out, it will be happening tomorrow. Yes. We have a very exciting workshop happening. Our biggest yet, by far, <laughs> intro to 3D type with Spline. So, you know, you probably heard Spline in our interview the other week. And if you went to Type Weekend, you saw Spline's name all over the place. They're this very cool 3D software to help you design in 3D and a very approachable way for someone who hasn't even really touched 3D before. So they're going to come in and give it a special sort of type focus for us to talk about how you can make illustrations and animations in their free 3D software for your type projects, which I think is just going to be really fun. Like you don't really need any experience. The app is free. Like you can just show up and learn some cool techniques that you might not otherwise. I'm really excited about this. I don't know if you guys know, but I also don't have much experience in 3D. I opened up Blender once, made a nice thing, and then closed it forever. So <laughs> when uh, I came about Spline, which is like really easy to download, and this is not, this is literally just from personal experience, and I could even just open it up in my browser, a lot of the UI of the program itself is very easily translatable for designers that are familiar with Adobe Creative Cloud. I, I think it's it's great. It's built 
and run by designers that care about 3D design, but also care about how designers in the past have dealt with 2D design software and creating in 2D. So like that whole mentality is really great. It makes it more accessible. There's like less gatekeeping to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think 3D type just brings type into a new dimension and just exponentially multiplies the possibilities with how imaginative you can be. And I'm really darn excited. Not even just a new dimension, but the next dimension. Yes, very fun. Which makes me think of Star Trek, obviously. I mean... I'm about it. And we got a preview of the class materials. It's going to be great. I think everyone's going to be surprised by how much they're going to learn in the weekend, which I think mm-hmm. is be really fun. And there's going to be there's going to be giveaways. Like, I, yeah, I keep forgetting deal. about that. Giveaways. <laughs> like, they're going to have goodie bags full of spline swag. But there's also going to be an M1 chip laptop giveaway for those that attend the workshop on both days. So, guys, this is nuts. Yeah, some cool stuff. <laughs> anyway, I think we're really excited because if you've been paying any attention over the last few months, we've been working really hard to ramp up workshops that people really want to learn about making and using typography. And uh, this is our first one where we get to approach it from the using typography. As a regular designer who isn't in this moment trying to make a font, I think that's going to be really cool. So... That's that. The link is in the newsletter and literally all over our social media if you're interested. So excited. And now we move on to the big news that we've just been sitting on for weeks. I know, guys. It's the announcement that Monotype has acquired Iconic Type Boundary, Hoffler & Co. My goodness. I mean, for anybody not as eyeball deep in the type industry as we are on a regular basis. Why is this such a big deal, Olivia? Why does this matter? Oh my gosh. But there's so many facets. I could tell you like the optimistic (laughs) reason this matters, the very jaded reason this matters, the like uh, hater reason this matters. But I mean, Hoffler and Jonathan Hoffler has run Hoffler and Co. Has made it to buy Fair Jones and Hoffler and Co. Or Fair Jones and Fair Jones Hoffler and Co. Is that what it was called? Anyways. This foundry has had iterations, but it also has produced like super, super iconic typefaces. We're talking Gotham. We'll start there, but Knockout, Mercury, Sentinel, Chronicle, Archer, like there are typefaces and there's probably been millions of dollars made in licensing for these typefaces, <laughs> especially Gotham, which was just like used everywhere for a good solid 15 years. This yeah. stuff was like from Obama campaigning for president for the first time to Martha Stewart's branding at one point yes yeah like everybody everybody has used these and it's one of those things too where the typefaces i hate to say this because i have personal issues with them their typefaces were so well done so well made so well produced that it was one of those things where you saw it everywhere and it didn't really get old yeah i mean and i've used plenty of their fonts before in the past and they're all like super solid super versatile lots to love there but yeah, I don't know. This is just a monotype continuing the monopoly. I mean, it's kind of like we should oh, we should do a nerd alert on this at some point. The American Type Founder, mm-hmm. American Type Founders Foundry, which was this very classic conglomerate of type foundries, I think in New York City or New Jersey. I don't know. Somewhere on the East Coast back in the, like the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Monotype is trying to reinvent that conglomerate by buying up as much as they can. I mean, I don't know. 
I don't know. I guess, yes, Hoffler & Co. is an independent foundry. Never really felt like an independent foundry. Like, mm. Jonathan Hoffler just made so much dang money off of this. And that's fine. I, like, I have nothing against people making money off of typefaces. But there's also, you know, the whole sketchiness of the deal with Tobias Fair Jones and ripping him off on a bunch of money that was made from Gotham. And so I've never, mm. like, considered Jonathan Hoffler a small guy. So I can't say I'm, like, heartbroken by the news or anything the way some are. But I am upset that this got announced from Monotype and the press release got announced the same day the staff members at Hoffler & Co. found out about it. And that it was is just, pretty rough. It's just like a big bomb that's just dropped in their life. And I can feel for them, too, wondering what their next steps are. I mean, at the moment, I haven't heard anything about anyone's jobs changing. Am I wrong about that? No, I don't think you're wrong about it. But they'd be like working under monotype, right? Because Jonathan Huffler is like, right. I'm saying goodbye to type for a little bit or something. Basically, the leader has changed and you're either have to go along with it or duck out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a tough decision, I'm sure. Do you have any feelings about this? Do you have any like good, bad, I don't know, any sort of feelings about it? I do. There was a, the reason that I'm not a huge fan of Hoffler specifically, Hoffler, if you're listening, which I doubt you are, it's because back when the league started, he specifically sent us an email when the league, when the league website first went up, like this new open source resource, we were literally just trying to make the design world a better place. And he emailed us being like, oh, you have images of a certain dimension on your site that are type specs of the fonts that you're that are in your catalog and so that's uh that's a copyright infringement and so you got to take the site down and i was like what <laughs> no and so that kind of left a weird taste in my mouth even though i am, have always been very impressed by the work i think a lot of that work was by the people working around hoffler i think hoffler was a savvy businessman to some extent in a lot in a lot of their direction which i can respect but at the same time I, I was never a huge fan, and especially when there was the drama about Hoffler and Frere Jones splitting up and how that didn't seem from the outside super fair to Tobias Frere Jones. So that made me a little bit less of a fan. And Monotype is this huge entity that, you know, they it's hard to think of. You always want to root for the underdog, and they are not the underdog. And so, you know, a huge entity buying a huge entity... It's kind of just like, all right, I guess the beast is just bigger now. Yeah. Yep. Similar thoughts over here. It'll be interesting. I haven't used Hoffler & Co. fonts very much recently. I know like larger agencies are reluctant to purchase big licenses to them, except for like the classic Gothams and stuff like that. So there was a typeface, for example, type family called Inkwell that was released by Hoffler. I don't know how widely licensed that was, but I love it. It's like a, it's handwritten font that's just really done really well. And they have a lot of different versions of it. So they have like a Sans handwritten. They have a Tuscan handwritten, a black letter handwritten. And because Monotype has deals with so many companies now, I'm curious mm -hmm. if we're going to start seeing more companies be using Huffler & Co. typefaces because they can license it through Monotype. And Monotype usually like... Likely, I don't know the specifics of it, but I'm sure likely has certain deals with certain companies and agencies. That's probably true. That makes sense. So that'll be interesting. I don't know. I guess I have a feeling that's a thing that won't be as public an, an announcement as we like see. Like we're going to have to keep our eye on what changes happen because they're probably not going to be announcing much besides the fact 
it was acquired. Yep. So interesting stuff. Crazy. I just love that we've been sitting up. Like, we basically got this news right before our interview that we were publishing, which was right before Type Weekend. Yeah. And so we were like, uh, we can't talk about it until now. Yeah, yeah. It was something like that. But um, interested in hearing other people's thoughts. I think a lot of people have varying opinions, and it's it's been really interesting hearing what people think, especially people that have been in the industry for a long time, maybe have a different take on it because they've been around, mm. like, Hoffler's work for so long and have understood how that has been so impactful. All right, Micah, what do we got next? Our next link is one that you found that you were pretty excited about, but have been having some trouble with. So my understanding is that this is Gucci, of Gucci fame, releasing 10 typefaces that they made in honor of turning 100. Yes. And so all the typefaces are based... So I'm having trouble with it, not because I necessarily dislike it. I'm just having trouble opening it. I don't know. There's There, <laughs> there might be cookies on my computer. Hopefully it works for you guys. Hopefully if it doesn't, the day this podcast comes out, maybe they'll work out their kinks later. But they made a huge catalog of typefaces based off of their logos that they've had in the past hundred years, which I haven't ever seen a company do it. I mean, it's done it. I had fun because you like open up the page and there's this Rolodex that you can flip through and I, I like that interactivity to it. And then you can just like browse their typefaces. Fashion's not necessarily known to really care that much about typography. I'm putting it out there. I'm saying it because I think it's true. <laughs> so like there's no licenses for these typefaces. Like you can download, but like who the heck knows who designed these? Who knows if there's like yeah. actual licenses? I mean, who knows how complete the sets are? But if you want like a fun thing to look at, and you like fashion, which I'm sure there are people that do. I thought this was fun. <laughs> you say that as if you don't. I mean, I, I do, but, like, there's people that, like, do. They're like, yes. Yeah, like, yeah, what sure. is it, like, Father God House of Gucci? That's in the new, like, mm. House of Gucci preview. So if yep. you're getting, like, amped that, up for no, that. It's coming out soon. I'm excited. For Even it. just looking at these, there's certainly, like, a couple, like, kerning issues here and there. Some of them are, like, not super readable. Some of them are very pretty. Some of them I recognize, even. Not being very much in the fashion luxury world myself, I will say, if you download them, I would not recommend that you use them because there is no license attached. Mm. And having, having written a whole licensing book on what you need to know about font licensing, if there's no license describing what you can do with it, it's safe to assume that you can't do anything with it. Mm -hmm. So maybe just use this for like personal stuff that is in no way commercial, at least. My okay. suggestion. Good suggestion. Like it. <laughs> uh, suggestion for Gucci, obviously. Oh, yeah, got it, mm -hmm. right. All right, our next article is definitely on the other side of that spectrum. This is like incredibly in-depth, detailed documentation of typeface design, specifically for the brand Nokia, but it's interesting. I mean, it's, a, it's a quite a lengthy article, so it starts talking about some of Finland's experience with typography in the past, how they've tried to set a Finnish type style, haven't quite have anything set in stone and how things evolved when Nokia became gigantic in the early 2000s, how they were going to solve the issue of creating a corporate typeface that felt very Nokia. So first of all, can I just say Nokia has been around since the 1800s? What? 
Did you know that? I want to see what their logo looked that. like. I want to see some old-timey, wood-type Nokia logo because <laughs> that is hilarious. And but What the but, heck were they doing? Like, they weren't making phones back then. That's, an, that's another day, another nerd alert. Yeah. <laughs> when their phones came out in the 2000s, the, like, advent of cell phones, they talk about the issues they clearly had with typefaces available at the time. For digital type, their options were basically, like, Tahoma and Verdana, but, you know, how to solve this issue of creating a typeface that felt very Nokia in nature, but also was like incredibly legible and really poor resolutions as were cell phones at the time. Mm. So they got Eric Speakerman to sign on to the project and they just talked about, you know, solving issues for poor resolution on screens, but also making sure it looks awesome on billboards and like what that process was like. I love that Eric Speakerman coins the word squircle, which is a square <laughs> circle, which is what you think of when you yep. think of the O in Nokia, which is really fun. And there's just like really great, super old graphics of computer and cell phone UI UX sprinkled in here. That's definitely worth taking a peek at. It is very fun seeing like all the screenshots of like Mac OS 8. Mm-hmm. Like this is like a computer that I learned computers on, um, but I'm old. Apparently, Nokia, this typeface that they developed back then did not last more than I think a decade. I think in 2011, they got Bruno Mog from Dalton Mog to work on an updated typeface to bring them into I mean, to be fair, a decade for one branding is like pretty good. I feel like we we see a lot of rebranding more frequently. For sure. I think it was like one of the pretty early cases of a company deciding to go for their own corporate typeface over an existing one because of licensing. Like early case as in we see that all the time now. But it was really a rarity back then, and it was really an investment. So it's kind of nice to see, like, the documentation of decision-making during that process. Eric Speakerman is quoted as not being too jazzed on the rebrand, where in this article he's quoted as saying, Nokia is throwing out 10 years of brand recognition in favor of blandness. I mean... Harsh. Sounds like someone's a little salty that their typeface has been <laughs> removed. Um, I mean, what would the type industry be without opinions, though, right? Oh, very true. And from Eric Speakerman, famed for his opinion giving on Twitter. In general, it's a really interesting read. It's a deep dive. It's, like, pretty playfully written, too. We had fun reading it, even though it's a little lengthy. So go check that one out. Indeed. All right. It's time. Remind us what we're talking about today. We are talking about the world of syllabics s-y-l-a-b-i-c-s guys now when we first brought this up you were like what i was like what and then i said what probably like 10 times every time you tried to explain to me and i was like (laughs) i don't know what you're talking about but (laughs) times times have changed I did some research. That was a whole week ago. Like week, like two weeks ago, okay. <laughs> Man, I have a lot of thoughts. So I will try to make this as concise as possible. There are basically two, two worlds of syllabics we're going to explore today. We're going to explore writing systems. So that's going to be for those people that love like a really big picture anthropological view about writing systems and how they evolve and exist amongst our cultures today. And then we're also going to talk about what I'm going to call the proper noun syllabics. So capital S syllabics, which is shorthand for the Canadian Aboriginal syllabic writing system. And we're going to look Mm. at their writing system in particular, because I think that has like a closer in look 
to how typography and Unicode have to do with a bigger picture. I had fun researching both of them, and I'm excited to talk about both of them. I'm going to start with some like pretty basic concepts so no one feels too lost, and then we're going to kind of go a little more detailed and a little more detailed. Something that is important to know is that languages are not writing systems. Languages have writing systems. Our language that we're using on this podcast is English. Our writing system is alphabetic. We have an alphabet mm. to help us with a writing system. Languages can also exist without writing systems, and that's all through verbal communication. All oral languages are phonetic, so every time that we speak using a language, it is phonetic. But again, uh, the question about moving a language into a writing system has to do with how you want to represent phonetics. These are some like super- Phonetics being the noises that you make in order to communicate? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Cool. So we're going to start there. And then as we move on, we can see how everything is connected. Writing systems are important to cultures the way language is important to cultures because it helps communication between people and communities. um, And it helps preserve a language and allows people to experience and connect with their culture in a different way. You know, today we have lots of digital systems that we communicate on. It'd be really hard to communicate with people in a language if you didn't have a writing system around you, especially these days when we're not necessarily talking face to face very much in the big realm of what we communicate every day. I, in fact, feel like I type out most of my communication during a given day. Yeah. So that's a way to start into thinking why writing systems are so important as we move into the next generation. And then in general, like Micah said, this whole talk was inspired by last weekend's Type Weekend talks. There was one incredible talk about the Cherokee syllabary, and then there was also a great talk about Canadian Aboriginal syllabics and developing more glyphs in that system to allow for more accessibility. So definitely check those talks out if you haven't yet. And so that kind of leads us to syllabic writing systems. So Micah and Steph were like, let's talk about syllabics. I was like, what the heck is syllabics? I Google it. It's telling me it's a writing system. I Google it another time. It's telling me it's like a specific writing system for indigenous people in Canada. So let's start with the writing system situation. I'll start with a small anecdote that like for a long time, me, myself, and I (laughs) did not know that there were like names for different writing systems. Like I knew there was different languages, but I thought they all had their own alphabet. So like I would think that like, us we have a latin alphabet for english and i was like oh and then maybe japan has a japanese alphabet and maybe turkey has a turkish alphabet i was like oh just everyone has different alphabets and that's how they communicate i mean that's just i have not i didn't do the deep dive but we have i've done the deep dive in the past few years and i'm really interested in thinking about the way that languages have developed because of these writing systems so a syllabic writing system what it is it's a system in which characters represent syllables. So this is interesting. Ah, shoot. You should have led with that. That makes sense. Yeah? Okay. Okay. Cool. We're going in deep now. Rather than a basic unit of language being, or a basic unit of writing being a letter in an alphabet, we can think about our base unit being a syllable. If we were to say our our names and we had a syllabic writing system, Micah, you would just be two symbols. My Mm. and then ka. And then yeah. mine would be a little bit more because I have more syllables. So O, Le, V, A. I have four syllables. I have four symbols. That's so cool. Yeah. Already we're like, huh. Okay. This is like a whole different way to think about 
language. And then we think about like our long words, like through would be one symbol because that is one yeah. syllable. And, and That's the, so neat. At the end, I'll talk about like why English would just work out terribly if we had a syllabic writing system. But it's <laughs> okay. interesting to think about like how our names could potentially be part of syllabic writing system. And so who uses these syllabic writing systems? The Cherokee language is syllabic. Parts of the Japanese language is syllabic, which I'm going to talk about because I think it's really interesting. And then other language are the Vi language that's used in Sierra Leone and Liberia and the Yi languages of Eastern Asia. There's some gray area. We'll get to it. So if we want to look into Japanese, I think here in America and a lot of places globally, we're exposed to Japanese words, for example, for food. We're exposed to words like sushi, teriyaki, tofu, sashimi. These, as we can think of, are actually quite easily formed by syllabaries. So syllabaries is our like catalog of symbols that we can use to write things down. So like the way we have an alphabet for an alphabetic system, there's syllabaries for a syllabic system. And mm -hmm. we can recognize phonetic patterns in Japanese that will help us like understand how they're pronounced actually. Teriyaki, sushi, sashimi, we're already seeing like pretty uh, easily recognizable sounds and vowels that are being heard. And then there's a certain pattern. So like for teriyaki, the way it's written, there's not like any complex structures to create vowel sounds or consonant sounds. It's actually quite straightforward. So already we're seeing how a syllabic language could be naturally adapted rather than our English language where we'll have maybe six letters to describe one vowel sound. Mm. So that kind of is an interesting place to start with things that we already know. So the Cherokee language I also want to bring up because it was a language that was developed quite quickly before the development of the Cherokee syllabary in the 1820s. Cherokee was only an oral language. So the syllabary really helped them put this language onto paper and pass it down. A man named Sequoia invented the syllabary, so introduced in 1821. What's really interesting is that within a year of it being introduced, 90% of Cherokee people could read it. It was like the highest literacy rate in Georgia, which is so interesting because this guy Sequoia knew there was written language from settlers. I believe he was Cherokee. He refused to speak English, but knew they had a way to put their language on paper. And so he like dedicated some time to figure out how to do it. He like tried different ways. He was like, maybe I'll do one syllable for a word one, or one symbol for a word, one symbol for a sentence. And eventually really thought about the way his language was structured and was like, okay, we have 86 different syllables, 86 different symbols. That is how we could actually put down our language on paper. And, mm. and then during the time they developed, there was a newspaper that was published in 1820s with the Cherokee syllabary. And it's like amazing to look at that like this was going on. Yet none of this is like in our common graphic design history, of course. That's pretty interesting. And that's where we start with syllabic writing systems. To have a better understanding of what, what they are. So we have alphabet. Alphabets are part of alphabetic writing systems. Syllabaries are part of syllabic writing systems. And then we have things like logograms that are like hieroglyphs and are used for Hanzi, which are Chinese characters. So that's like symbols representing like things and ideas. So we may, may be familiar with that from college or from history class. And then there's a thing called an abugida, A-B-U-G-I-D-A. And that exists between an alphabetic system and a syllabic system. 
It's like halfway between an alphabet and a syllabary. So what this is, it's a script where there are symbols. There's like a set amount of symbols with that are represent consonants. And then the way that those symbols are modified is how you add a vowel sound to it. So, mm. you know, that could either be diacritical marks. Let's say you have the letter K, you put a diacritical mark, maybe an, an upward accent, and now all of a sudden it's key. A downward accent, maybe it's co. Mm. Similar to syllabic, but in the middle between alphabetic and syllabic. That we'll makes have, sense. Yeah, so we're get, we'd have a whole other nerd alert to go into all of these. But I do actually want to talk about like, the proper noun that is syllabics, which, as I was saying earlier, is the Canadian Aboriginal Syllabics writing system, which is really confusing because it's based on an Abu Gita. It's not like if people are being really particular about it. They don't call it a syllabic system the way syllabic is defined now. But like things, definitions have changed throughout time. But as I kind of mentioned earlier, Abu Gita is still similar to syllabic writing systems. The principles are very similar. So remember I was mentioning earlier that like consonants denoted with a diacritical mark could add the vowel sound to a consonant. In Canadian Aboriginal syllabics, they rotate consonant characters to make different vowel sounds. So de- Literally, like, the, the character itself is rotated 90 degrees yes. or 180 or something like that. Yes, and I think they literally refer to north, east, south, west. That's cool. As, yeah, as to which direction it goes. So, similar to Cherokee, these indigenous Canadian languages, or the Canadian Aboriginal syllabics, they had no formal writing system until the 1800s. Interesting backstory, it was, like, actually invented by a missionary from England because he wanted to teach the indigenous people in Canada about Christianity. So, like, of course he had his own agenda and a questionable means to an end. And he likely worked in collaboration with indigenous language experts. And he was actually inspired by the success of the Cherokee syllabary, which was developed just, like, maybe 20 years previously. It's so interesting to think that when he was developing this, he was trying to use the Latin alphabet to teach these people how to read and write, but it was just so awkward with the way the language was already developed. So using his knowledge of Devangari and a shorthand for English, he like combined the knowledge of both those things to make Canadian Aboriginal Slavics, which is pretty interesting. And then similar to the Cherokee language, by the end of the 19th century, they had like one of the highest literacy rates in the world, like these communities, because of the way that their language was developed. Really fascinating. And today's dilemma, which was what Kevin King's talk was about at Type Weekend, is that there are still dialects of people that use Canadian syllabics that don't have full support. So they might not have a complete set of characters. Their characters might not be represented in the right way if they're from a more like uh, smaller community of indigenous Canadians up there. I think that's what they're really fighting for is to hold on and preserve their language and their writing systems because their writing system is like the best representation they have of their language. And that's like an interesting jumping off point for us to keep thinking about past this nerd alert is how important writing systems are, how much they reflect culture, how much we take for granted as people that use the Latin alphabet. How would like we feel if we, if someone came in and told us that our language had to be written using a totally different set of symbols, like that would feel it somewhat like pretty much that we're stripped of whatever culture that we associate that with. And thinking about language and writing systems is a different way and 
thinking about like how that's developed throughout the world. And like, I'd love to see how syllabics in Asia relate to syllabics in Canada, relate to like different writing systems that have developed in between and like how that history has not moved through the world. And I remember from Kevin King's talk, what really struck me, you know, a lot of his talk was about how he had been working with the Unicode consortium to include these syllabic characters in the Unicode standard. And what what really struck me about that was that he, he had described that until that, that until that is included in everybody's version of digital language and typesetting, it means that these communities have to have not only their own font with glyphs that are non-standard. So that means like, if you are writing something to me, you have to have that exact font installed. I have to have that exact font installed in order for you to write it and me to read it. Mm. And on top of that, they had to have a special keyboard developed because the keys just didn't match. Mm -hmm. And so in order for you to even write that email or text message or something to me, you had to have a special keyboard in order to do it. And that's why he was working so hard, him him and many other people, working so hard to have the people who were in charge of the world's writing system digitally, which is crazy. Like the Unicode Consortium is this place that I usually see them in the context of deciding which emojis we should have in our Mm -hmm. keyboard, but they're also deciding which glyphs should exist on a standard scale for that to be included means that these people can use the language that comes from their culture and that a lot of people are trying to revive in order to keep some of that history and culture alive that they can write text messages like that that just blew my mind something that we take for granted so much is just like something that they have to fight for i don't know and even that i I remember in that talk too even though he did succeed in getting Unicode to agree to including a lot of these syllabics in the standard, it still has to go to Apple and Google for them to make keyboards that can support it in their software and ship those. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy how much like work that is. And crazy that we're just now starting some of that work. Yeah. But I think it also says a lot that we're, I think a lot of cultures in general, especially when I've talked to Americans that have heritage and ethnicities that aren't from Europe, a lot of people are trying to bring back things that were forgotten for many years. So there, like there's a bunch of Asian Americans, me included, that don't know languages that like our aunt, like my great grandparents spoke or understood Mm. or were connected with because of so much whitewashing and so much like stripping of culture that people felt for so many decades because they like didn't want anyone to know that they like that they weren't as like capable as white Americans. (laughs) So like, it's interesting. Like the racism led to generations of people pretending that they were white Mm -hmm. in order to not be segregated, abused, all all manner of horrific things. And now we're like getting to a point in culture where at least the younger generations are not as racist and want to celebrate different cultures. But it's in generations of, like you said, whitewashing. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. It's especially hard, I think, for indigenous cultures too. Like they already have 
the setback of having been colonized or like people part of the Cherokee Nation today, probably there are still generations today that they had to remove the Cherokee language from their like speaking and everyday communications Mm. in order to assimilate. And now it's I think there's a lot more younger generations that are trying to bring it back. And I think I was like researching syllabics. I came about this whole section that was like because Japanese is partly syllabic. I'm Okinawan which is indigenous people of Japan and like how their language is also Slavic, which I like can then be like, oh my gosh, yeah, I think of like my mom's maiden name, Adania, and like other Okinawan family, like Uehara, and like how that makes sense for how things are pronounced and how things work and like why my my mom's last name was what it was. And then also how the Okinawan mm. language itself is being, people were literally killed for speaking Okinawan in Japan. There's just so many layers to why languages have gone extinct and there's some Ones are more severe than others, but like, how amazing would it be if there are young people that are like, are ready to celebrate that and can be embracing that now in the 21st century? Oh, I just think there's so much more rich culture that can be like dug up at this point of time. And I do hope to see it happen more and more. Which not to be too grandiose, but I think that is one of the amazing things about the revolution that has happened in typography around open source being something that multiple people from anywhere in the world can contribute to. And everybody has free access to. And at that point, like, I have to commend, for example, like Dave Crossland over at Google has done an amazing job of commissioning people from different cultures to contribute to open source type in many different languages. Like Noto, Mm -hmm. the font Noto, short for no tofu, tofu being the glyph that shows up when there isn't a glyph designed, right? Mm -hmm. Like the whole purpose behind that project was to have a design for every possible glyph. And that's exactly why the like purity of open source is so significant in my brain Mm -hmm. is because it enabled at least efforts in that direction. Yeah, that's, I like that connection. And if anyone wants to see a syllabic font, we have linked to one in the weekly typographic newsletter this week. It's called Narak. I think it has support for both Latin alphabet and the Canadian Aboriginal syllabics. So you could actually see them next to each other and how they could look. It was a project from 2013 that I think is very cool and still very relevant to what we're talking about. Yeah. Very, very freaking cool my friend. I appreciate all of the research that you did on this to be able to talk about it so deeply. Thanks for getting me motivated to talk about it. I hope that the conversation continues and we hear from people that have their own point of view on this situation. Indeed. In frickin' deed. All right, everybody, we got to go. We've talked for a long time today, and it was great. Hopefully we'll see you in the... I don't even think that we mentioned that the workshop is free, but Whatever. Hopefully we'll see you in the free workshop. Oh tomorrow. yes. <laughs> do 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 do. Uh, do 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 do. <laughs>